the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Looking forward to a conversation in our second hour with Representative Greg Cheney. He represents Southwest Washington's 18th legislative district. We'll talk about House Bill 2030 that would allow incarcerated uh, individuals, murderers, rapists to serve as jurors while incarcerated, vote and run for office. That's coming up later in the uh, second hour of today's program. But we'll cover uh, much of the day's um, news as well as some of the developments over the last several days, including the pro-life march that took place last Friday. Well, today marks the 51st anniversary of the landmark Supreme Court decision Roe versus Wade, which for half a century permitted the uh, lawful termination of millions of unborn children in utero. 65 million lives have been lost because of the legal abortion regime ushered in by Roe versus Wade. Well, now more than a year and a half after Dobbs, Jackson, uh, uh, I should say, versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, a decision uh, overturning Roe states uh, are publishing helpful reporting data showing how the Roe reversal has affected efforts to protect the unborn. So far, 32 states have reported 420, I should say 4,240 um, legal abortions in 2022, an estimated de- decrease of 31,951 from 2021. Well, this uh, sample includes a wide variety of state laws protecting life from conception when a heartbeat is detected or after the first trimester. Well, on On the flip side, other states passed new laws promoting abortion with taxpayer funding and created other legal protections to make abortion even more accessible. Unfortunately, some pro-abortion states that actively recruit women from out of state to obtain abortions like California, New Mexico and New York haven't yet reported their 2022 totals. But others like Colorado, Illinois, Kansas and Washington uh, that um, neighbor pro-life states have reported providing good insight into the impact out-of-state travel has had on abortion totals. Well, in 2022 data that shows that an 8% decrease in the abortion rate in 32 states, the abortion rate that calculates how many women of reproductive age are getting abortions, would indicate that fewer women chose abortion in those states, even with the option to travel out-of-state to get an abortion. Well, these preliminary findings track with a study from the Institute of Labor Economics that found states with pro-life laws saw an increase of 32 2,000 births due to the impact of those laws. Well, as expected, in every state that enforced a heartbeat or life at conception law, abortions went down. In every state that allowed abortion at 15 weeks or later, abortions increased. With Vermont, which allows abortions at any point in pregnancy, the only exception that saw abortion totals decrease. Well, Texas saw the single largest decrease in abortions at 33,572, each a distinct individual created in the image of God. 
with nine other states reporting a decrease of 1,500 abortions or more. And despite Florida enforcing a 15-week limit since uh, July of 2022, abortions there increased by 2,700. Now, that's likely due to Alabama, Georgia, and other southern states enforcing much more protective laws. Well, the weakness of the 15-week limit law is what prompted Florida Governor Ron DeSantis to sign the Heartbeat Protection Act of 2023. And even though Kansas has a history of passing pro-life laws, it still allows abortions through 22 weeks and saw an increase of more than 4,000 abortions driven largely by Oklahoma and Texas residents traveling to Kansas. Kansas demonstrates the direct impact a constitutional right to abortion can have on a state, prohibiting it from passing strong laws to protect the unborn. Well, contrary to media narratives, the 2022 state reports also show how important pro-life laws are to protecting the health of both unborn children and their mothers. Pennsylvania, which allows abortion through 24 weeks, reported 469 abortion complications. That's an increase of 45 percent from 2021. The majority of those complications were fetal tissue remaining in the uh, uterus after an incomplete abortion, which is most common with chemical abortions. And that should tell you something about the debate now swirling around the use of chemical uh, abortions. Conversely, Arizona, which had a pro-life governor in 2022 seeking to enforce new pro-life laws after Roe fell, saw a significant decrease in the number of abortions due to maternal medical conditions. Arizona also reported only eight abortion complications compared with more than 400 reported in Pennsylvania. And despite the welcome success of pro-life laws in reducing abortion in certain states, many Many hurdles stand in the way of pro-life laws effectively saving innocent unborn lives and protecting women's health. The primary obstacle is the lawlessness of the administration and the support it receives from activist pro-abortion governors. The Biden administration is illegally performing abortions at Department of Veterans Affairs facilities in pro-life states and flying service members around the country to get elective abortions as well. Pro-abortion states are also working overtime to publicly flout federal and state laws by mailing chemical abortion pills into pro-life states and providing legal cover for shady abortionists to do so. Well, thankfully, there are two important cases pending at the U.S. Supreme Court that can address those issues. The first will determine whether the Food and Drug Administration is able to put politics above science and allow women to legally receive dangerous chemical abortion pills in the mail without ever seeing a physician for an ultrasound or health screening. The other involves a case in which the administration is attempting to use a decades-old law that simply requires hospitals to screen all patients presenting to an emergency room to force pro-life states to perform unnecessary abortions. Fortunately, the law makes clear that both pregnant women, women rather, and their unborn children are to be screened and thus cannot be used as a mandate on states to perform so-called life-saving abortions. State-level abortion data proves that pro-life laws are working and the abortion industry is catching on. Now is the critical time to ensure that the promise of the Dobbs decision is fully realized by enforcing existing federal laws that prohibit mail-order abortions, and that is now being considered, or soon will, by the U.S. Supreme Court. And while 2022 was the year we celebrate the overturning of Roe v. Wade, 2023 saw several more states passing and begin enforcing new pro-life legislation, and now, in 2024, will be the year of promoting the rule of law and good health care for both women and their unborn children. Well, as I mentioned, the March for Life took place on Friday in Washington, D.C., and while some headlines read, 
hundreds attended. And that, of course, is accurate, but it was actually thousands who attended. It is the largest human rights event in the world, but it's always undercounted for reasons I don't think I need to explain. Some of the signs that were there I appreciated. One simply said, uh, potential human. It was in a circle, crossed out. And then with a check, human with great potential. Another one read, um, have the spine to defend the humankind. Another, America runs on life. Another sign, a real feminist chooses life. One sign read, and I'm trying to flip through these as quickly as I can. Um, can we at least protect this border? Um, Another wrote, can't defeat us. And of course, it was spelled in a way that you would understand. Our salvation began with an unplanned pregnancy, one sign read. Their rights don't end where your comfort begins. Another sign simply read, Americans are born to be free. If only they were free to be born. One sign said, would it bother us more if they used guns? Very clever signs. I will not stay silent so that you can stay comfortable And a sign simply read, how can there be too many children? That's like saying there are too many flowers. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later in our second hour, a conversation with Representative Greg Cheney. He's representing Southwest Washington's 18th Legislative District on House Bill 2030. It would allow incarcerated, um, well, murderers and rapists to serve as jurors, uh, to vote, to run for office while incarcerated. That's coming up in our second hour today. Well, Ron DeSantis dropped out of the presidential race on Sunday afternoon and endorsed former President Donald Trump, announcing the suspicion, suspension rather of his embattled campaign in a video posted on X just two days before the first in the nation New Hampshire primary, which is tomorrow. Well, DeSantis acknowledged in that video announcement on uh, Sunday afternoon that he no longer had a clear path to victory in 2024, but emphasized that his political career is just beginning. While this campaign has ended, the mission continues down here in Florida. We will continue to show the country how to lead, the governor said. Coinciding with the video announcement, DeSantis canceled a meet and greet event with voters originally scheduled in uh, Manchester later in the day. His departure comes after his allies had spent days making calls to top donors asking whether the candidate should drop out ahead of the New Hampshire primary, as first reported Sunday afternoon by National Review. Well, the bundler page on the campaign's finance website was no longer working earlier that afternoon, which signaled to those of in his orbit that a dropout announcement was imminent. Well, DeSantis had put all his eggs in the Iowa basket, which uh, won him key endorsements from Governor Kim Reynolds and influential evangelical leader Bob Vanderplatz. But given that DeSantis and his allied PACs invested heavily in Iowa to the exclusion of New Hampshire, Trump's uh, roughly 30-point defeat proved a fatal blow to a campaign that was already on life support. New Hampshire State House leader Jason Osborne uh, told Real Clear Politics in recent days that it would have been better for DeSantis personally to wait for 2028 to run, though he suggested that would be too late for the country. Nationally, DeSantis uh, was polling in third place at 10.5 percent, according to Real Clear Politics polling average. The campaign had been uh, plagued by controversies from a bungled launch on Twitter and uh, X uh, spaces to significant turnover among both the campaign and DeSantis allied never back down pack. 
He is not in the race any longer, and he has endured, endorsed uh, Donald Trump. Meanwhile, Republican presidential contender Nikki Haley ruled out the possibility of serving as vice president in comments to New Hampshire voters on Friday amid speculation that former President Donald Trump might tap her to balance out his ticket if her own presidential ambitions don't pan out. I've said from the very beginning, I don't play for second. I don't want to be anybody's vice president. That's off the table, end quote. She told diners at a restaurant in Amherst, New Hampshire. Of course, politicians' pronouncements, even confidence pronouncements, are always subject to change. Well, the former UN, UN ambassador presidential campaign has been dogged in recent weeks by questions about her willingness to serve as vice president in a second Trump administration. She made clear that is not on her list of uh, things she wants to accomplish. Meanwhile, fresh off the news that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis had suspended his presidential campaign and endorsed the former president, Nikki Haley delivered an optimistic speech to supporters, projecting confidence that she can pull off a miracle in the first in the nation GOP primary state on Tuesday. Can you hear that sound? That's the sound of a two-person race, she said, speaking to supporters at a high school auditorium in Exeter. But with two days to go, now one day to go until voters head to the polls, her own Granite State supporters, many of them self-described independents, are doubtful she can pull off a surprise win here in New Hampshire against her former boss, let alone secure the GOP nomination. Trump still leads her by uh, double digits in New Hampshire in the 538th GOP primary polling average meaning she will likely rely on independent and Democrat voters if she wants to pull off an upset on Tuesday. And that may not bode well to her critics uh, who are charging that she is not conservative and is relying too heavily on independents and Democrats. And so the game is played. Well, in what may turn out to be the most pivotal election case since Bush versus Gore, the U.S. Supreme Court issued a short order on January 5th, granting the request by the former president, asking the court to overturn the Colorado State Supreme Court December 17th decision, disqualifying him from appearing on the state's presidential primary ballot. Well, the U.S. Supreme Court moved with unprecedented speed. Trump's uh, uh, rather Trump filed his petition for um, a hearing on the 3rd of January and the court granted the appeal only two days later. Well, the case has been put on what for the Supreme Court is a rocket docket, as they say. There's no doubt that getting into the Supreme Court for the February 8th, the oral argument will be the hottest ticket in town since either the Dobbs case or uh, case overturning Roe versus Wade or the case challenging the constitutionality of Obamacare when people started lining up the night before at the court's location behind the U.S. Capitol. The court is also sure to be flooded with uh, amicus briefs on both sides, given the key importance of this case to the 2024 presidential election. In fact, just before the court issued in, uh, its order late the afternoon on the 5th of January, accepting the case, 27 states led by the attorney general, Attorneys General of Indiana and West Virginia, Todd Rotkita and Patrick Morrissey, they filed a brief on Trump's uh, on Trump's side, urging the court to take the case as soon as possible to head off the chaos that the Colorado decision will produce and erase the standardless political judgment that violates the Constitution. Well, the chaos the states warn about is very real, given that there are more than a dozen of these challenges underway in different states like Colorado. Uh, the main secretary of state has also uh, disqualified Trump from her state's ballot, while other states like Minnesota and Michigan have rejected these challenges. 
Uh, There are numerous reasons, uh, both constitutional and statutory reasons, why the Colorado court's decision was wrong. Section three and of the 14th Amendment, which was aimed at preventing members of the Southern Confederacy who had engaged in insurrection and rebellion from serving in the federal or state government, does not apply in this case because uh, Trump was never an officer of the United States a precondition for the application of Section 3. Now, the Supreme Court has previously held that an officer of the United States, and that's a term in quotes, is a term that only applies to individuals appointed to posts within the executive branch, not those elected. Also, Congress has not passed any legislation providing a means to enforce Section 3, and there are serious questions of whether Section 3 is even still legally viable because of two amnesty acts passed by Congress in 1872 and 1898. Now, the first in uh, 1872 removed all political disabilities, and those words are in quotes, political disabilities imposed by Section 3 with certain exceptions related to the Civil War. And the second in 1898 got rid of those remaining exceptions with no language preserving the disqualifications of Section 3 for future cases. Also, Trump has never been convicted or even charged with insurrection or rebellion and was, in fact, acquitted of incitement of insurrection by the Senate after his second impeachment. So there are numerous reasons for the court to overturn the Colorado court's misinterpretation and misapplication of the 14th Amendment, a decision that effectively disenfranchised almost 4.5 million registered voters in the state of Colorado, whose right to make their own choice about who should uh, be a candidate for president was stolen by four judges. Well, if the U.S. Supreme Court doesn't overturn this uh, decision, millions of voters in other states will be similarly disenfranchised. Oregon will very likely be among them, striking a devastating blow to the democratic process and setting up a precedent that I can almost guarantee will be used and abused ad nauseum in the future. Meanwhile, the president of the Heritage Foundation confronted the hosts of the uh, World Economic Forum, not just of, but at the World Economic Forum on Thursday in Davos, Switzerland, challenging claims that the uh, World Economic Forum or WEF is protecting democracy and calling so-called elites part of the problem. Well, Heritage Foundation President Kevin Roberts spoke out from Davos uh, where he had been invited to speak on a panel. Roberts told reporters after his speech that he was somewhat shocked to have received an invitation to the annual meeting of world leaders and globalist figures, but said he cherished the opportunity to give voice to the forgotten people who are not collectively heard from or considered by those in attendance. The forgotten people aren't just poor or working class Americans of all ethnic backgrounds. There's a lot of these forgotten people, as I've come to learn over the last few years, who are small business owners, people who scraped and saved, he said, adding that many aren't often inherently political. They uh, all believe the same thing, which is that the American dream is slipping away from them. Well, at the WEF, the World Economic Forum, Robert spoke on a panel entitled What to Expect from a Possible Republican Administration and was joined by ex-Senator Rob Portman, a Republican out of Ohio, the Wall Street Journal's Gerard Barker and Bard College professor Walter Russell Mead and offered uh, pointed um, uh, countervailing views to the majority of Davos figures uh, that at times appeared to um, ruffle the moderator who was a bit shocked at being challenged in such a way uh, at the uh, event. Well, Robert said it's laughable that you or any would describe Davos as protecting liberal democracy. 
It's equally laughable to use the word dictatorship at Davos and aim that at President Trump. In fact, I think that's absurd. Well, Roberts went on to tell the Davos Forum the next conservative president will have a popular mandate to take the power of the elites. The thing that I want to drive home here, the very reason that I'm here at Davos, is to explain to many people in this room who are watching with all due respect, nothing personal, but that you're part of the problem. He said elites in the vein of the WEF tell average people the reality is X when in fact it's Y on issues ranging from border security to climate change. And when asked what figures Roberts believes would be part of a second Trump administration, he replied the possible next president-elect would decide that. However, he went on to offer a pointed characterization of the type of person the forgotten people want to see in the bureaucracy. He was candid. We'll tell you what he said in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. I'm Georgine Rice. Coming up later the next hour, Representative Greg Cheney representing Southwest Washington's 18th Legislative District on House Bill 2030. Representative Cheney will join me in the second hour. Uh, we've been talking about um, Davos and the fact that they had a panel to discuss uh, what they would consider the disaster of a Republican um, administration in the uh, U.S. election upcoming. Uh, and the uh, head of the Heritage Foundation was among a few who were given the opportunity to speak. He said this, I'll be candid here because I think I've been invited here to be candid. The kind of person who will come into the next conservative administration is going to be governed by one principle, and that is destroying the grasp that political elites and unelected technocrats have over the average person, he said. Uh, The agenda that every single member of the next administration needs to have is to compile a list of everything that's ever been proposed at the World Economic Forum and object to all of them. Wholesale. (laughs) Any official in the 47th presidential administration unwilling to reform the bureaucracy has no place in Washington, he went on to say. Well, in an appearance uh, before, uh, prior to his appearance at the World Economic Forum, uh, he made some remarks and equipped how an America first message hasn't seemed to resonate at the conference. Uh, Yet there are four or five of us who've been invited here out of a few thousand who actually understand that America first policies are right, not just for Americans, but for non-Americans, he said. When Americans are at their apex of freedom, the rest of the world really benefits, he went on to say. A rather interesting uh, presentation. Also at the uh, World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos, Switzerland this week, or last week rather, um, were... uh, Let's see. um, Jamie Dimon scolding his fellow Democrats. Um, My heart is Democratic, but my brain is kind of Republican, he said at the event. So said J.P. Morgan Chase, Jamie Dimon, uh, back in 2019. But we wonder if he had a change of heart since then, now that he's had a change to uh, a chance, rather, to see just what a difference a president can make. Well, at the World Economic Forum's annual meeting in Davos this week, um, where private jets converge and where Klaus Schwab and his fellow great resetters determine how the rest of us should live. The 67-year-old Diamond had some refreshing, harsh words for his Democrat colleagues. I think this negative talk about MAGA is going to hurt Biden's election campaign, he said Wednesday on CNBC's Squawk Box, telling them to be more respectful of Donald Trump and the tens of millions of his supporters. I wish Democrats would think a little more carefully when they talk about MAGA, which stands for 
make America great again. Uh, He said that Joe Biden kept preaching about at his inaugural address um, that we are to be united. Unity was his theme. Didn't he say we need to come together as one nation? I mean, really, can we just stop that stuff and actually grow up and treat other people with respect and listen to them a little bit? Diamond went on to say, if only. Well, after Trump's historic 30 point win in Iowa, Unity Joe nonetheless took to X to denounce his fellow Americans, at least those Americans who happen to disagree with him politically. This election was always uh, going to be you and me versus extreme mega Republicans. It was true yesterday and it will be true tomorrow. So I guess unity is out. Trump has noted it is um, really a smear to say that uh, he and his supporters want to make America great again. But back uh, to Jamie Dimon for his. Um, he really pushed the envelope as the New York Post reports. Dimon also praised some of Trump's policies, telling progressive voters to take a step back, be honest. He was kind of right about NATO, kind of right on immigration. He grew the economy quite well. Trade tax re- uh, reform worked. He was right about some of China. He wasn't wrong about some of these critical issues. And that's why they voted for him, end quote. Well, notice how he said Trump wasn't wrong rather than simply saying that he was right. Uh, the former is still couched in a negative, while the uh, the latter sounds too effusive for such Trump-loathing uh, polite company. This is a combination of goodwill and ill will that Trump uh, tends to engender. I agree with Jamie Dimon, says former Pennsylvania Democrat Congressman Patrick Murphy. He was speaking on uh, one of the news outlets. Murphy, who was the first Gulf War elected to Congress, added, there is absolutely no reason why you should criticize former President Trump supporters. People want a unifying message. People want an American leader that's going to unite our country. So by calling them deplorables, by calling them crazies, it's not helpful. And I think that's why people are so sick and tired of politics. We need American leadership. We need to move America forward. And I hope that's what 2024 is going to be all about. Well, Murphy, who also served as Army Undersecretary, called the 2024 race a battle for the soul of America. And we certainly can't uh, argue with him. But we also sense that centrist patriots such as Murphy are growing increasingly conflicted by their allegiance to one party or the other. Diamond is slowing, uh, slowly thawing to the idea that business should not be taking sides against hardworking Americans. And that's being reflected in comments that are being made publicly. Now, whether that or whether or not that will translate into a political victory, one side or the other remains to be seen. But it is interesting to see the um, dialogue that's taking place under the current of the major political parties. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court is allowing Border Patrol agents, we learned earlier today, to cut the razor wire that Texas recently installed along the U.S.-Mexico border while the administration's lawsuit against the Lone Star State continues. In a 5-4 decision handed down uh, earlier today, the court granted the Department of Homeland Security's emergency request to cut the wire, which the agency claimed was endangering migrants and preventing Border Patrol agents from patrolling the border. Federal law unambiguously grants Border Patrol agents the authority without a warrant to access private land within 25 miles of the international border, the appeal read. Conservative justices Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh dissented while Justice Amy Coney Barrett joined the liberals in the majority. The court vacated its an injunction that was imposed last month by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the first uh, rather fifth circuit, which permitted Texas to keep its um, concertina wire barriers. The temporary decision comes after Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton sued the administration in October over the destruction of the state's concertina wire, alleging federal agents assisted the illegal 
entry of thousands of immigrants. In uh, response, the Biden administration has maintained that Border Patrol must apprehend illegal immigrants once they enter the U.S. and that the wire barrier prevents the agency from patrolling the border. Uh, The bottom line, it does not resolve the crisis on the border that the uh, president just uh, admitted was the case. Well, as the 2024 White House race appears to be moving toward a rematch between President Biden and former President Trump, the centrist group No Labels is taking steps to prepare for a possible third party unity ticket. And the group says it has support pointing to a slew of public polling that indicates Americans are anything but jazzed about Biden Trump presidential election. We're responding to a clear demand from the American voter. A vast majority of them aren't happy with the likely major party nominees. The group's chief strategist Ryan Clancy says they want another choice and all no labels is doing is offering them that choice. Clancy in an interview with Fox News Digital on Thursday said no labels is doing a lot of dialogue with our members across the country to get a better sense of the kind of candidate, the specific candidates that people would want to see on the ticket. He reiterated that the group hadn't made a final determination about whether they would be better served with having a Republican rather than a Democrat at the top of their potential ticket. Will be an interesting uh, uh, addition to the uh, presidential race. Well, the electric bicycles caused a record number of fires, injuries, and death in New York City last year as Democrats continue to push for greater adoption of the device as a solution to global warming. Overall, e-bikes sparked 267 fires, which caused 18 deaths and 150 injuries in the city. According to New York Fire Department data shared with uh, news media, the uh, figures represent the highest level of each statistic with e-bikes related deaths increasing 200 percent, fires increasing 21 percent and injuries increasing 2 percent in the city year over year. GOP presidential candidate Nikki Haley said that pardoning former President Trump would be healing for the country as she took tough questions from voters uh, days ahead of the New Hampshire primary election. Haley fielded a series of tough questions at the town hall on Thursday night, which came just five days before Granite State voters headed to the polls or rather head to the polls for the GOP primary. During Haley's town hall on CNN, the former United Nations ambassador said she would pardon Trump if elected, but only if the GOP frontrunner were actually convicted of a crime. Haley said that the last thing we need is an 80 year old president sitting in jail because that That's just going to further divide our country. This is no longer about whether he's innocent or guilty, she said. This is about the fact how um, how do we bring the country back together? She said she is determined to make the, the division and chaos go away and that she believes pardoning Trump would make all of that go away. And I think it would be healing for the country, she said. Well, it is a bit optimistic to imagine that pardoning Trump would make it all go away, but we'll just leave it at that. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. Just a reminder, coming up in our second hour, a conversation with Representative Greg Cheney, representing Southwest Washington's 18th legislative district on House Bill 2030 that would allow incarcerated individuals to serve on jurors, vote and run for public office while incarcerated. That's coming up after the top of the hour. Well, the former House Select Committee on January 6th apparently deleted more than 100 encrypted files from its probe just days before Republicans um, took over the majority of the House of Representatives. It's been learned the House Administration Committee's Oversight Subcommittee is leading an investigation into the January 6th, um, 2021 
uh, committee led by Chairman Barry Loudermilk, a Republican out of Georgia. The panel is investigating the security failures on that day, as well as the actions of the former select committee investigating the Capitol riot. Well, Loudermilk last week said his investigation has entered a new phase with renewed support from House Speaker Mike Johnson, who's committed additional resources to the panel's investigation. Sources familiar with the investigation said that per House rules, the former select committee, which uh, was chaired by Representative Benny Thompson, a Democrat from Mississippi, was required to turn over all the documents from its investigation to the new GOP-led panel after Republicans secured the majority of the House of Representatives following the 2022 midterm elections. Well, Representative Thompson uh, told Loudermilk that the select committee would turn over four terabytes of archived data, but that the new committee only received approximately two terabytes of uh, data. Well, Loudermilk's uh, committee hired a digital forensics team to scrape hard drives to determine what information they were not given and perhaps discover why not. Well, nearly two dozen current and former officials serving in the White House and the Biden administration, including the president's national security advisor and the secretary of state, have extensive ties to Hunter Biden, who's accused by Republicans of selling access to his father dating back over a decade. An analysis from Fox News Digital revealed the extent of his potential reach into the White House as the embattled first son faces federal tax charges in California, as well as congressional investigation into his alleged influence peddling and foreign business deals. Hunter pled not guilty during his initial court appearance this month after being charged with nine tax crimes stemming from an investigation by Department of Justice Special Counsel David Weiss. A day earlier, he made a shocking appearance at a House Oversight Committee meeting where members were considering whether to hold him in contempt for defying a subpoena as part of the impeachment inquiry into his father, President Biden. The most notable individuals from Fox's analysis include two members of Biden's cabinet, one former cabinet member, a top aide to Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin, a national security advisor for top Biden White House aides, the communications director for First Lady Jill Biden and multiple other former staffers. Well, Democrats in the Washington state legislature have introduced a bill that would replace the term sex offender in an apparent attempt to avoid defining a sex offender by their crime. House Bill 2177, if uh, passed, would change the name of the Sex Offender Policy Board to the Sex Offense Policy Board. The bill also adds a... um, Convicted sex offender to the board, as proponents argue, the offender's lived experience, also known as their crimes, are invaluable. One representative with lived experience or a criminal past with incarceration for a sex offense appointed by the chair of the sex offense uh, policy board and approved by a majority vote of the board's uh, voting membership would serve on the board. The bill states board membership is not restricted to level one sex offenders who are at least uh, the least likely to recommit a sex offense. But rather, the bill allows level three, the most dangerous felons to serve on the board. Uh, The uh, sex offender will serve alongside victims of sex crimes who would um, be uh, another new addition to the board. The Sex Offender Policy Board was uh, created in 2008 to promote a coordinated and integrated response to sex offender management and create an entity to respond to issues that arise, such as integrating state and federal laws in a way that enhances the state's interest in protecting the community with an emphasis on public safety, according to its website. 
Well, Republican State Representative Dan Griffey, he opposes the measure and question why the board would advocate for sex offender. The apparent effort by the Washington State Democrats to designate sex offenders comes after other attempts to release them from prison and an effort we'll talk with Representative Greg Cheney about after the top of the hour. Well, former President uh, Donald Trump stopped by his campaign's New Hampshire headquarters on Sunday, shortly after opponent uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis dropped out of the 2024 presidential race. Speakers uh, speaking to Granite State volunteers, the former president told the crowd he was uh, leaving um, that he would stop calling DeSantis Ron DeSanctimonious. Uh, You know, it's retired, the former president said to the volunteer. Okay, I just said uh, that I will uh, be using the name Ron DeSantis and not DeSanctimonious. He added to the room of people. I said that name is officially retired. Thank you. I think I'm trying to think of when I stopped using uh, calling people names. Was that third grade or second grade? Uh, I don't know. Well, after Alaska Airlines uh, flight attendant Marley Brown and Lacey Smith say they evoked their Christian faith during their company's push for diversity, equity and inclusion, the two called for religious liberty in the workplace. Well, Smith spoke about uh, why she believes her termination by Alaska Airlines was motivated by religious discrimination. During the interview, she was accompanied by Stephanie Taub, senior counsel for First Liberty Institute, who's representing her in a lawsuit against Alaska Airlines that they filed in May of 2022. Brown said, I went to access my schedule in the morning. I saw the Alaska that Alaska had posted an article uh, that just uh, said Alaska supports the Equality Act. Uh, there are a lot of different religious people uh, who have had issues with the Equality Act. And I guess I just had some questions with Alaska in terms of what that meant when they said things like Alaska supports the Equality Act. Why does um, what does that mean for me? The Equality Act, which was introduced by then House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, sought to add sexual orientation and gender identity as protected classes in employment, housing and other cap- uh, capacities under the federal civil rights law. Well, the measure passed the House in February of 2021. Her comments came after FLI and the Ard Law Group on Wednesday filed a motion for summary judgment on behalf of Smith and Brown, the two former employees, after they sued Alaska Airlines and the Association of Flight Attendants, a union for flight attendants in May of 2022. Well, uh, FLI and Ard Law Group alleged that the airline terminated them because they asked questions in a company forum about the company's support for the Equality Act and the uh, AFA failed to adequately defend them. Well, community leaders, nonprofits and government agencies are racing to curtail an exploding cat population in Los Angeles, where animal advocates estimate there are almost as many felines as there are people. Well, the citywide cat problem or program, as they would call it, estimates there are around 960,000 unowned community cats in the city of Los Angeles. But various nonprofits and animal rights groups have suggested this number could be as high as three million in a city of four million humans. Well, the program was approved in late 2020, and in February of that year, rules and uh, the Los Angeles Board of Animal Services commissioners adopted rules and regulations applicable to the trapping of cats, so long as it adheres to permits issued by the Department of Animal Services. By engaging individuals and community organizations to humanely trap community cats, 
spay and neuter them and then return the sterilized cats back to their outdoor homes where they were found. We'll reduce the number of unowned stray cats in our streets and shelters, the program's website states. Well, the process of trapping, neutering and returning unowned cats is more commonly known as TNR, one of several methods communities are using to control evolving cat populations. Well, that's one way to put it. Experts um, and proponents of the movement have said that spaying of community cats can prevent unwanted litters, decrease the number of cats euthanized and improve their health, reduce nuisance um, behavior and help save taxpayer dollars spent on putting cats in municipal shelters. Note to self, do not go to Los Angeles Four, or rather three million cats in a city of four million Well, on Friday, the Senate passed a short-term spending bill to keep the federal government open. The Senate passed the legislation to keep the government open into March, kicking the measure to the House as Congress continues to struggle to approve long-term spending laws, uh, one of its primary responsibilities that it just can't seem to uh, keep in a timely manner. Well, Democrats are upset that President Biden is willing to deal with Republicans on the border crisis, which he, for the first time in a long time, admitted is a crisis. Democrats are upset with the president and the U.S. launched another strike against Houthis, destroying 14 terrorist missiles. But sadly, not all of them. Well, Asian parents are are suing New York's STEP program for discriminatory admissions practices. And a so-called squad member has has proposed a $14 trillion reparations measure stating the U.S. has a moral and legal obligation. Keep in mind, the U.S. national debt sits at $34 trillion. So good luck with the math. Arab nations have proposed an Israeli-Hamas peace plan, which would recognize a Palestinian state. Um, Arab states are working on an initiative to secure the ceasefire and release the hostages in Gaza as part of a broader plan that would offer Israel a normalization of relations if it agrees to um, to irreversible steps toward the creation of a Palestinian state. Needless to say, the conditions are not agreeable. Hamas would remain in power. We're going to take a break. We've got news coming up at the top of the hour and then a conversation with a Washington state representative when we return. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, on Tuesday, the House State Government uh, and Tribal Relations Committee in the state of Washington held a public hearing on a bill that would allow convicted serial murderers and rapists to serve as jurors, to vote and to run for elected office while in prison. Well, three Republicans on the committee, uh, they issued a joint statement in response to that hearing saying that House Bill 2030 is the latest in a long list of radical proposals that prioritize criminals at the expense of victims and would re-victimize thousands of Washington families still suffering from the immeasurable pain and lifelong scars that forever haunt the loved ones of crime victims. Well, Washington has already um, restored the voting rights of incarcerated people convicted of felonies immediately upon their release. That was back in 22. And Representative Tara Simmons says that's not enough. The next step, she believes, should be allowing all Washington prisoners to vote and the other rights I've already mentioned. Well, joining us to talk about this uh, legislative debacle is Representative Greg Cheney. He's serving his first term representing Southwest Washington's 18th legislative district. He's a longtime resident of 
battleground and attorney focused on helping small and medium-sized businesses. And he provides um, uh, indigent representation to low-income Washingtonians in need of legal support. He's also a small business owner and joins us today as a lawmaker uh, addressing this uh, legislation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Great. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being here. Well, this is um, extraordinary. We're talking about House Bill in the state of Washington, House Bill 2030. It would effectively allow anyone incarcerated in the state prison to vote or to sit on a jury and apparently run for office as well. Give us a little bit of that backstory. Yeah, well, I don't know that I understand the backstory because, quite frankly, this is just a shocking bill. It's a shocking proposal um, that is uh, just, I think, very far afield from where the average voters are, uh, voters are on this issue. Just to give you some sense of this, um, there is the town of Connell, Washington, has about a thousand uh, citizens in it. Uh, the prison in the town has about 2000 prisoners. So hypothetically, under this bill, all of those prisoners serving felony sentences could vote in the entire school board, the entire city council and the local uh, sheriff, et cetera. Um, Obviously, this is a bad idea. It, it, It just simply doesn't make any sense. Well, they'd also be allowed to sit on juries. Now, is that while they're still incarcerated as well? Yeah. And of course, there's huge security risks there. Uh, What are they going to do? Transport them back and forth from the prison uh, to the jury, uh, you know, that might be uh, several hundred miles away. Um, Also, uh, think about how deeply uncomfortable uh, those uh, fellow jurors might be if they know the person sitting next to them uh, is, let's say, an accused rapist. Or or let's think in in real terms here about some of the, the worst crimes against children. Uh, production of child pornography. Um, let's say there's a person who's currently serving a, a felony sentence for sexual exploitation of a child. How deeply uncomfortable and how re-victimizing that would be uh, to the loved ones of a victim in the new crime to know that one of the people sitting on the jury panel has been accused of this exact same bad conduct. Yeah, there is an exception written into the bill, if you can, with a straight face, call it that. It only bans prisoners from voting who are convicted of a crime punishable by death. However, in the state of Washington in 2018, through a court decision, it was determined that capital punishment is unconstitutional. The governor signed a bill last April that abolished the death penalty uh, in state law. So this really doesn't exclude anyone, um, as it would suggest it might. Well, exactly. And it was a shell game, I believe, uh, written that way um, to try to give some political cover. But of course, as you noted, uh, in 2023, um, the I spoke out very strongly against the deletion of the death penalty in this state. Um, it was hidden in a 200 page bill, a couple of paragraphs in the course of a massive bill um, that effectively wiped the death penalty off the books. Um, and so that was and I and I think that that was a part of a shell game on this bill to try to say, oh, look. But the reality is, is that a someone like Gary Ridgway, uh, we know that he took the lives of at least 49 women um, under this bill. He would have his right to vote, right to run for public office and his right to serve on a jury uh, uh, be reinstated. And that obviously doesn't make any sense. 
Yeah, it doesn't make any sense at all. Now, one of the reasons that has been given by the sponsor of the bill, Representative Simmons, is that there has historically been an effort to disenfranchise certain uh, members of the community, primarily based on race, uh, historically, and and therefore um, this should be extended to every prisoner, every felon, every serial killer, every rapist in the state uh, to right and historic wrong. That seems to be the logic that she's uh, extended. Yeah, I, I, I didn't understand the logic uh, of, of that argument either. Uh, quite frankly, um, I think there is a long tradition uh, of denying rights uh, to people accused of, of felonies and other heinous crimes. For example, uh, they get to live in an eight by eight uh, square box. The rest of us can live in a home. Uh, they I, uh, they lose their Second Amendment right to bear firearms uh, when they are convicted of a felony. It is long tr- historical tradition dating clear back to our British parliamentary days pre-American Revolution that, in fact, prisoners, particularly felons, do lose rights when they uh, create uh, uh, bad conduct and they are convicted for that bad conduct. There are approximately 13,000 people in Washington's prisons. Not all of them are citizens, but a significant number of them are. That number could significantly alter the outcome of elections, small and large, if this were uh, permitted to move forward. I know that many Republicans have objected to this legislation and have expressed that. What about Washington State's Secretary of State? Uh, Yeah, he also expressed uh, some concerns about the bill um, and, uh, you know, I again, I think that I, I don't want to put words in the secretary of state's mouth, but um, I I think that they my, my guess is they were troubled by some aspects of the bill uh, as as we uh, on the committee were. So what happens next? The, the bill has been introduced. It's been given a committee hearing. What are the prospects of it moving forward out of committee for a full vote? And just your thoughts on what we should look for. Well, so um, there's a couple of options, but the the easiest to understand option was that it could be set for what's called executive session. That is where bills are considered and then voted out of committee to the full House. Um, I'm uh, hopeful that this one will not leave the committee and that it will simply die of its own uh, bad idea. But I do need I want to make sure that your, your listeners understand the stark contrast here. Um, the police pursuit initiative was signed by 485 or 480 some thousand Washingtonians. It cannot get a hearing to restore police pursuit in this state. That mm. no committees will hear that bill. On the other hand, a bill to give uh, murderers and rapists the right to vote, run for office, and to, and to sit on juries can get a hearing. That is a stark contrast in a difference of vision for this state. It's just breathtaking, and yet that's that's where we uh, where we stand. And, and again, uh, a lot of attention is focused on Gary Ridgway as an example. He was, of course, the Green River Killer. He is currently incarcerated in the state of Washington. He took the voting rights of forty nine to seventy women. One lawmaker made that uh, point in the discussion around this piece of legislation, and it certainly uh, should be sobering to Washington voters to consider that this. Uh, This has been proposed. It has been given a hearing and that other legislation that has to uh, that points to the protection and safety of Washingtonians can't seem to get a hearing. What do you suggest our listeners do who are as outraged by this as I am and many lawmakers in Washington are? 
Yeah, I mean, keep the pressure up. I I, I will say this. I do think that uh, those of us who receive emails from our constituents read them. I know I certainly don't have uh, time to write back to everybody who writes to me, but I read uh, most of those bills or most of the emails coming in. So I would keep up the pressure in that way, uh, letters, emails. Um, But I think also, you know, just spreading the word uh, about some of these poor bill ideas, these really bad bill ideas that um, so that really folks understand just what a stark contrast there is between, again, a, a clear example, we can't get a hearing on police pursuit, but we can get a he- there's a hearing on giving murderers the right to vote. Yeah. And of course, elections have consequences. I hope people are paying attention. They're they're uh, active in this legislative session, communicating with lawmakers, but are also aware that how they cast their ballot in the days ahead will have an impact on the course that the state of Washington will take in the days ahead as well. Well, Representative Cheney, I appreciate uh, your work in the uh, Washington legislature and you're taking the time to talk with us about this piece of legislation here today. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Again, Representative Cheney represents Southwest Washington's 18th legislative district in the state. He's one of uh, the House Republicans who spoke out against this bill to allow incarcerated murderers and rapists to serve on juries, to vote and to run for office while still incarcerated. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, cold weather is deadly. Well, it wasn't just bad here in the Pacific Northwest. It was bad across the country. Well, as winter weather hit much of the nation this past week, sending temperatures plunging, it served as a sobering reminder that cold can be deadly. Some 95 deaths were tied to the cold weather last week, 25 in Tennessee. Uh, here in Oregon, we reported 16 deaths, including three people killed by a tree falling on their car. Snowy and icy conditions worsened by strong winds that served to create dangerous traveling conditions and power outages. I know some of my coworkers here in the Portland area only had their power restored in the last day or so. The bitterly cold weather is expected to lessen by midweek. This isn't to say that... Uh, uh, this isn't real and doesn't pose any real de- uh, risks, rather, but cold generally kills far more people than heat. So be careful uh, and stay warm and safe. Well, another unfortunate um, photo op, a Thursday campaign stop in North Carolina for the president, backfired when it inadvertently revealed the impact that the inflationary policies he has backed have caused. Well, the president spoke at Abbott's Creek Community Center in Raleigh to drum up support for his economic policies. But after his speech, he visited a, a branch of the fast food chain Cookout. I've never heard of it, but apparently it's popular there, where he was photographed with a large menu board behind him. As Newsweek reported, one photo showed Biden in front of a menu which listed the price of a cookout tray at seven sixty nine. Unfortunately for Biden, North Carolina Senator Phil Berger, he posted an image of the president visiting the same restaurant chain when the same meal was a lot less expensive. Well, Newsweek continued on 18 October 2020. President Biden went to Durham, North Carolina, ahead of the 2020 presidential election. The cost of a cookout tray then was five dollars and ninety nine cents, according to the photo of Biden in front of a similar menu. Well, that's some serious Bidenflation, about 28 percent. When you have Newsweek making the point, you know, the president might be in just a little bit of trouble.
Well, some good political news for conservatives, radicalism and extremism do not serve political parties seeking to grow their voter base. Now, that can go on either side of the political aisle, but that appears to be what has been transpiring thanks to the embrace of hard left woke policies. A recent Gallup poll found that the Democrat Party has dropped to a 35 year low with just 27 percent of voters identifying as Democrats, more moving toward the independent aisle. Similarly, just 27 percent of voters currently identify as Republican, though the GOP's voter identity decline has not been as pronounced. The political identity that has grown is the number of voters now identifying as independent, neither Democrat or Republican, which has risen to 43 percent, matching a record high set in 2014. The trouble for Democrats and Joe Biden is that independent voters over the last few years are leaning more Republican in terms of casting a ballot. This may not be the case this time around, but the past does perhaps inform a little bit of the future. The survey found that 45 percent of all voters identify as Republican or GOP leaning, while 43 percent of voters identify or lean Democrat. This percentage mark uh, marks just the third time in the last 35 years that Republicans hold a slight voter edge over Democrats, at least on paper, when actual ballots haven't been cast. Democrats are clearly in a weaker position than they had been in any recent election year, Gallup observed. And what's expected to be a close election contest, it is critical for each party, but especially Democrats, to nominate a candidate who can appeal to independent voters. And again, we'll see what actually happens. Well, George Soros is aiming to turn Texas blue for many years now. The Democrats have dreamed of flipping Texas and its largely Hispanic population from Republican to Democrat, one column to the other. Were that to happen, it'd be disastrous for the future of the GOP presidential election prospects now and in the future. Now, uh, billionaire George Soros, who's a something of a leftist, is getting involved. As the Washington Examiner reported, the move by left-wing billionaire George Soros to pour major cash into turning Texas blue in 2024 shows Democrats were afraid the GOP's momentum in the state. Republican candidate and ex-representative Maya Flores told the Washington Examiner in an interview. Well, Soros personally has transferred at least $100,000 since August of last year to the Democratic Party Executive Committee in uh, Cameron County, which is part of the Lone Star State's 34th Congressional District, where Flores is seeking to unseat Representative Vincenze Gonzalez. Well, according to financial disclosures, Soros has also made donations to other Texas counties, as well as funneling huge sums to the liberal Texas majority PAC. Some pretty telling news. A concealed carry holder prevented a robbery. It's not uh, unusual, but it's not usually covered. Well, in a story of a good guy with a gun stopping bad guys with guns, plural, a concealed carry permit holder engaged his Second Amendment rights. Responding to a vehicle for sale ad on Facebook Marketplace in Peoria, Illinois, a holder of a concealed carry permit and his friend met several men who were armed faked sellers seeking to rob the two of them. Well, the pair were able to foil the robbery attempt when the CC permit holder drew his firearm and a firefight ensued. Apparently the wild, wild west. And I'm not sure this is what we want to see in the future. One of the criminals was hit during the exchange and died at the scene. Responding authorities from the Peoria Police Department investigated the incident and released the CC permit holder without any charges. People should remain vigilant during marketplace type transactions. 
advised a spokesperson for the department. That's the police department. Use good judgment when it comes to selecting meetup locations that are highly visible and preferably under video surveillance and well populated. The parking lot and lobby of the police department are also available to conduct such transactions. Well, there's a thought. Well, House January 6th committee, they apparently deleted more than 100 encrypted files days before the GOP took the majority. We'll talk. uh, We actually talked more about that earlier in the program. Sports Illustrated's entire staff has been told they're being laid off. The Los Angeles Times is planning significant layoffs and two thirds of elites say there's too much freedom in America. I guess if you're an elite, you think the rest of us have too much. Tim Scott uh, got engaged to his girlfriend over the weekend and in and out has been forced to shutter its doors at the Oakland location because of crime. It's the uh, burger company's first ever store closing. Well, Democrats in Washington are changing the name of sex offender to protect rapists feelings. Oh, there's so much I could say about that fact, but we'll move on. Well, on this day in history, 1498, During his third voyage to the Western Hemisphere, Christopher Columbus arrives at the present-day Caribbean island of St. Vincent. 1917, President Woodrow Wilson, in an address to Congress, pleads for an end to the war in Europe, calling for peace without victory. By April, however, the United States also would be at war. 1973, former President Lyndon Baines Johnson dies at his Texas ranch at age 64. At the time, it seemed ancient to me back in 1973. Now looking back, He was so young. 1973 as well, the United States Supreme Court in its Roe versus Wade decision legalized abortions using a trimester approach. 1995, Rose Fitzgerald Kennedy, the matriarch of the Kennedy family, dies at the Kennedy compound in Hyannisport, Massachusetts. She was 104 years old. 1997, the Senate confirms Madeleine Albright as the nation's first female secretary of state. 1998, Theodore Kaczynski, he uh, pleads guilty in Sacramento, California, to being the Unabomber, responsible for three deaths and 29 injuries in return for a sentence of life in prison without parole. 2008, Jose Padilla, once accused of plotting with al-Qaeda to blow up a radioactive dirty bomb, is sentenced by a U.S. federal judge in Miami to 17 years and four months on other terrorism conspiracy charges. The sentence would be later increased to 21 years. 2009, President Barack Obama signs an executive order to close the Guantanamo Bay prison camp within a year. The facility would remain in operation as lawmakers would block efforts to transfer terror suspects to the United States. President Donald Trump later would issue an order to keep the jail open and allow the Pentagon to bring new prisoners there. 2018, President Trump signs a bill reopening the government after a 69-hour shutdown. And also, and finally, in 2018, Governor Phil Scott signs legislation making Vermont the first state in the country to approve the recreational use of marijuana through the state legislature uh, rather than through a vote of residents. Well, the March for Life uh, rallied against abortion and for life with an eye toward the November elections this Friday. Bait and switch. President Biden's decision to water down the Houthi terror designation is drawing outrage And the Biden Houthi sanctions include a carve out allowing lucrative energy deals with the terror group. Are the airstrikes on the Houthis working? Well, no, the president said. Will they continue? Yes, they will. 
indicted Senator Menendez attended a classified State Department um, uh, briefing and the tax extenders package would cut the child tax credits annual work requirements in half. Well, amid the homeless and drug crisis, San Francisco's budget deficit could reach one point four billion dollars. Now, if you're listening from Seattle, we are out of time. I want to thank uh, Pedro Bartes for engineering and producing in Seattle. If you're in the Portland area, we'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Portland only portion of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, there are 50 countries that have been designated as the hardest to follow Jesus in 2024. Now, this weekend was Mission Connection. It was held at Sunset Church. And let me just say how grateful uh, we are that Sunset was uh, willing to make their beautiful sanctuary and the entire facility available to not only the city of Portland, but the Pacific Northwest. Mission Connection Northwest is the largest mission conference in the nation. And many gathered there, despite the weather, uh, to hear an incredible lineup of national and international speakers. We had a report uh, from Egypt and the Middle East that, for me, was so incredibly encouraging and a reminder that God is always about much more than we ever imagined. That while we look at the bleak headlines, we see what's happening on the ground, um, we have to always lift our eyes and remember that God has not withdrawn uh, from uh, this world. He is active. Many are coming to faith in Christ. In fact, in numbers that would uh, would shock most of us in areas where it is most difficult uh, to be a follower of Jesus. And we had reports on that. We had uh, reports from apologists covering a broad number of areas in which those who have a clear call on their life, which, by the way, includes all of us, but those who recognize that clear call on their life. Uh, to be a participant in the Great Commission. It was a gathering with great worship. Phil Church and the Sunset Worship Team led us there. Uh, we heard from a number of incredible ministries. There were 98 exhibitors there. Uh, there were um, almost 100 workshops that uh, were available for attendees to participate in. It was just a great weekend, and it helped to elevate my perspective on what's going on in the world. Now, I, I love God's word. I love the scriptures. I am a follower of Jesus. My hope and my confidence is in him. And while I talk about elections and who's doing what and the outcome of certain things and what tragedy occurred in this area and the challenges that they're facing in another, my hope and my confidence are in Jesus Christ. I've read the book. I know how it ends. I know what my assignment is as an ambassador of Christ. So I'm not shaken to the core by the things that I'm made fully aware of and steeped in throughout the day preparing to do a show like this one. And I would encourage you, if you have never attended Mission Connection, it always takes place in the first, uh, I think the second or third week in uh, in January, depending on um, the location and all of that. But it is a, an incredible um, opportunity uh, to hear from and clarify, Lord, what is my specific calling? What's my role in the kingdom of God? The part that I'm playing in the body of Christ and in the, the great unfolding of um, uh, the the Great Commission, whether that it means you are called to serve abroad or you're called to be faithful right here at home, um, it is a tremendous opportunity to clarify, refine uh, that calling and your understanding of it and to gain a broader sp- perspective, a biblical perspective on what God is doing around the world. And with that in mind, I wanted to share with you the findings of a recent report. It comes out on a regular basis, but this latest uh, provides a list of the 50 countries where it's hardest to be a follower of Jesus 
uh, this year. It's the latest report on Christian persecution, and it chronicles the rising danger of Islamic militants and autocratic regimes from Nigeria to Nicaragua. So as uh, part of the uh, the family of Christ, those of you who are followers of Jesus, I thought you might find this uh, rather interesting. It can help us know how to pray and to prepare ourselves um, to shrink uh, not to shrink back from fear that so often prevents us from faithfully fulfilling our calling. Well, again, nearly 15,000 churches were attacked or closed in this past year, 15,000 of them, and more than 295,000 Christians, at least known Christians, 295,000 were forcefully, forcibly displaced from their homes because of their faith. Sub-Saharan Africa, the epicenter of global Christianity, remains the epicenter of violence against followers of Jesus. And that's according to the 2024 World Watch List. The latest annual accounting from Open Doors ranks the top 50 countries where it's most dangerous and difficult to be a Christian. Now, danger and difficulty following Jesus is nothing new. He himself uh, set that example of his uh, disciples and apostles They set that example. Jesus himself warned us that in this life, you will know tribulation. They rejected you. uh, Rather, they rejected me. They will reject you. So this isn't a surprise. But to have a more precise understanding of where and how it's taking place, um, I think, can be useful. Well, the concerning uh, tallies of martyrdoms and abductions are actually lower than in last year's report. But Open Doors emphasizes they are absolute minimum figures. It's attributed to both declines to a period of calm in advance of Nigeria's latest presidential election. Yet Nigeria joined China, India, Nicaragua and Ethiopia as the countries driving the significant increase in attacks on churches. Overall, 365 million Christians live in nations with high levels of persecution or discrimination. That's one in seven Christians worldwide, including one in five believers in Africa, two in five in Asia and one in 16 in Latin America. Now imagine yourself sitting in the sanctuary of the church you attend. Um, One out of every seven believers on the pew in your row uh, is facing discrimination or persecution. As an example, Uh, look around the congregation and imagine how many in that congregation, if this were to represent the world and where it's most difficult to be a follower of Jesus, how that might uh, affect your congregation, for example. And for only the fourth time in three decades of tracking, all 50 nations scored high enough to register very high persecution levels on Open Door's matrix of more than 80 questions. So did seven more nations that fell just outside the cutoff, um, Syria and Saudi Arabia, um, enter the tier of extreme persecution, raising its count to 13 nations? Well, the answer, sadly, is yes. Well, the purpose of the annual um, uh, world rankings is to guide prayers and to aim for more effective um, anger while showing persecuted believers that they are not forgotten. We know that the scripture says that we are to consider those who are uh, persecuted as though we ourselves are being persecuted because the scripture describes us, the body of Christ, as being members one of another, that we need one another, that we can only function as a body when every part is free to function as they are called. And when we are hindered by this persecution, intimidation and discrimination uh, it hinders the work that uh, god has called them to and yet they faithfully uh, continue to do what uh, they are uh, and what we are called to do so that's the purpose of this uh, 
this report. The 2024 version tracks the time period from October 1st of 2022 to September 30th of last year and is compiled from grassroots reports by teams of open door workers and partners across more than 60 countries. The methodology is um, audited by the International Institute for Religious Freedom, and they try to provide the most accurate accounting of what's happening in the world within the body of Christ. Now, when the list was first issued back in 1993, only 40 countries scored sufficiently high to warrant tracking. This year, 78 countries qualified, and these are known cases. So where are Christians most persecuted today? Well, North Korea ranked number one as it has every year except in 2022, when Afghanistan briefly displaced it. The rest of the top 10 reshuffled by, but remained the same. They are number two, Somalia. Number three, Libya. Eritrea at number four. Yemen at five. Nigeria at six. Pakistan at seven. Sudan at eight. Iran, number nine. And Afghanistan, number 10. The deadliest country for Christians was Nigeria, with more than 4,100 Christians killed for their faith, 82% of the global tally. Overall, 15 sub-Saharan countries scored extremely high on Open Door's violent metrics. In Mali, no, uh, number 14, and Burkina Faso, jihadists exploited breakdowns in government security, while the tax on churches grew sharply in Ethiopia at number 32. Open Doors scores each nation on a 100-point scale. Increases of more than four points were recorded in Oman, Burkina Faso, uh, uh, Nicaragua, Algeria, and Laos. Oman rose from 47 to number 31, though the specifics of its violent statistics are kept hidden for security reasons. It in, in its second years on the uh, list, uh, Nicaragua rose from number 50 to number 30 due to open government hostility against the church. Algeria rose from number 19 to number 15 as authorities stepped up a campaign against the Protestant church, of which only four of 46 churches remain open. Only four of 46. We'll continue to uh, uh, reflect on this report in just a few moments, but I do need to take a quick break. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the uh, open doors uh, ranking of the 50 countries where it's the most dangerous and difficult to be a Christian. Uh, the latest report on the Christian persecution, it chronicles the rising danger of Islamic militants and autocratic regimes from Nigeria to Nicaragua. Well, where is it hardest to follow Jesus? As I mentioned earlier, number one, North Korea, followed by Somalia, Libya, Eritrea, Yemen, Nigeria, Pakistan, Sudan, Iran, Afghanistan, India. Laos, which rose from 31 to number 21, was cited as a good news story. I never saw a clearer connection of a growing church with growing opposition resulting in higher scores. That's a quote from the Open Doors researcher. He went on to say, I find it comforting that the biblical verses predicting this connection are still true. Colombia was the only nation in the top 50 to record a decrease of at least two points, dropping from number 22 to number 34. Significant improvement was seen also in Vietnam. It dropped from number 25 to number 35. Indonesia from 33 to 42 and Turkey from number 41 to number 50. Other signs of hope were noted in Mali, where citizens approved a new constitution that clearly recognizes its Christian minority and could lead to a return uh, to civilian rule. And in India, uh, in uh, the 
Karnataka state, uh, an opposition party dislodged the Hindu nationalist BJP, which uh, with a pledge to reverse local anti-conversion laws. So there is some good news. And I will pause and say this. I had Mission Connection. I had the opportunity to hear from a speaker who had a um, personal and direct um, experience in the Middle East where we were told that men and women and children are coming to Christ by the millions in the Middle East. I'm not going to go into much specifics. While you can uh, go to Mission Connections website at some point in the not too distant future and hear the the speakers and sessions that were part of uh, the event, um, those that were conveying sensitive information that might put others who are working in the field in these countries uh, on this list and beyond, uh, were not recorded for their safety and those who are on the ground ministering there today. I have been, um, I have never been as encouraged uh, by the spread of the gospel and the move toward fulfilling the Great Commission as I was hearing from some of these speakers with firsthand on the ground um, reports. They live, they ministered in and to the people there and were able to give us the encouragement and the reminder that while Uh, Headlines reflect what's happening on the ground from the world's vantage point. God is always at work in ways that I think, as I was, you would find astounding. And that certainly is the case. Well, where do Christians face the most violence? And by the way, the answer to that question does not reflect the church diminishing, that it is no longer functioning. It's no longer thriving, because in many of these uh, these cases, it is, in fact, growing exponentially. But where do Christians face the most violence? Again, according to the Open Doors uh, report that was just released in Nigeria at the top of the list, followed by Pakistan, India, uh, Eritrea. There was another country at number four. The name was withheld for security reasons. Mali. Myanmar, formerly Burma, Bangladesh, Central African Republic, and the Democratic Republic of Congo. That's where Christians face the most violence. We can pray as if we ourselves are facing that violence. Overall, India maintained its number 11 ranking as attacks on Christian homes doubled to 180. Christian fatalities increased ninefold to 160. And attacks on churches and Christian schools rolls from 67 to 2,228. Combined with the estimated 10,000 church closures in China at number 19, uh, these two nations accounted for nearly 83% of all violent church incidents in 2023. Yet it was Nicaragua's overall 8.3% rise in overall score that represented the fastest increase of all uh, in this um, of these nations, rather than setting a new trend, Open Doors stated the Central American nations tailor made legislative restrictions on religious freedom, seizure of Christian properties and arrest or exile of religious leaders is evidence that Nicaragua is more falling in, into step with communist Cuba and number two up from 27. Authoritarian impulses are imported elsewhere as China and Russia, unranked but monitored by open doors, spread their influence, especially in Africa. The largest among many buyers of Beijing's surveillance technology is Nigeria, while Moscow's uh, uh, Wagner Group uh, was made inroads with security assistance in Burkina Faso and Mali, Mali rather, Central African Republic and Mozambique. There are no new countries in this year's top 50. They just shuffled around.
Well, how are Christians persecuted in these countries? Open Doors, they tracked persecution across six categories, including both social and government pressure on individuals, families and congregations, and has a special focus on women. When violence is isolated as a category, the top 10 persecutors shift dramatically. Only Nigeria remains. Uh, martyrdoms dropped by more than 600. And this is known cases from the prior year as Open Door tallied 4,998 Christians killed for their faith during the reporting period, representing a decrease of 11 percent. The toll remains the third highest since the 2016 record of 7,106 deaths. Nigeria accounted for 82 percent of the total. The Democratic Republic of Congo is number two with 261 Christians killed with India at number three with the 160 individuals, each of whom made an individual personal decision to follow Christ, to be his servant uh, and to share his gospel. These are my brothers and my sisters, my elders and young people for whom I would have been perhaps an auntie. And it challenges me to break the barrier of fear here in this country that prevents us from boldly proclaiming that Jesus is Lord, sharing our testimony, spreading the gospel where God has placed us. Well, where were Christians martyred the most? In their order, beginning with number one, Nigeria, the Democratic Republic of Congo, India, the name withheld from one country where over 100 uh, were martyred, Uganda, Myanmar, Burkina Faso, Cameroon, Central African Republic, and Colombia. Well, there are more statistics from Open Door. I don't have time or won't go into all of that detail, but they've reported on where churches were attacked or closed the most, why Christians are persecuted in these countries, how the world watch list compares to other reports on religious persecution and more information. And I would encourage you uh, to um, access Open Doors for this information. Their world watch list can be very helpful in directing your prayers uh, that are uh, timely Uh, that are focused on areas that are facing severe uh, persecution. And I know that I found uh, their resources very, uh, very useful. But we can all pray. God knows the details of who, where, when, what, and will hold those accountable who are persecuting believers. But I also pray for the persecutors. You know, Paul was one of them. He was the chief apostle by the time his life ended. But he began as a persecutor of Christians. And so I pray for those who are persecuting believers uh, today, that they too would come to faith in Christ. I was in Israel some years ago, and I met a man who was a member of a a major uh, terrorist organization, the name of which you would recognize, who shared his testimony of coming to faith in Christ. He talked about his seething hatred for Jews and his seething hatred for Christians until God rested his attention and he came to faith in Christ. He talked about the miraculous way Christ revealed himself to this man who was unwilling to connect in any meaningful way with a believer or a follower of Jesus. Christ is on the move, and as followers, we need to be moving with him and following him where he's leading, whether that's here at home, whether that's abroad, whether we're being sent or sending others, welcoming those who are coming to uh, to our area. There's so many people from all over the world coming here. Uh, we all have a part to play, and it's exhilarating to consider that God is accomplishing his will in the earth, and he's using his people to do just that.
Want to thank James Blend for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.